This podcast is brought to you thanks to the generous support of Whistler Blackcomb, leaders in delivering adventure. It's not even exposed. It's just a steep slope that you're sidestepping up for 50 meters with the skis on your shoulders. And um, as he turned around and looked down, I guess he felt a bit woozy and let go of his skis. And so his skis slid 50 meters down and then he just jumped and grabbed my boot. And so here I was standing on Spanky's ladder with an adult clinging to my boot. Welcome to Delivering Adventure. This is the podcast that explores what it really takes to share adventure like a pro with your friends, your family, and as a profession. My name is Chris Capio, and I'm coming to you from Whistler, British Columbia. And I'm Jordy Shepard, recording from Canmore, Alberta. After a lifetime of working extensively in different parts of the adventure guiding industry, Chris and I have teamed up to launch this podcast. In each episode, you will hear top adventure guides, managers, marketers, and athletes share their best stories, advice, and trade secrets. The goal of this podcast is to share how you can take yourself and others farther from the mountains to the office and beyond. In this episode, Peter Weiland joins us to talk about how we can help ourselves and others to embrace adversity. Peter is an ex-semi-pro adventure racer and the former owner of Rocky Mountain Cycle Tours. Peter currently serves as a technical director for the youth soccer program in Squamish, BC, where he lives with his family. In recent years, Peter has helped to grow that program to over 700 kids, which is an amazing achievement. Chris, I think you know Peter pretty well. That's right, Jordy. My connection to Peter is that my partner Jeannie and I ran a hiking tour in the Canadian Rockies for Peter for 15 years. I also teach skiing with him in Whistler here. I can tell you that Peter was one of the best people that I've ever worked for, and he is amazing at seeking out and powering through adversity. This is why I think he is the perfect person to speak on this subject. Yeah, Chris, and I recall working for indirectly for Peter uh, a number of years ago where you were running his program in the Rockies and you asked me to come out and uh, do some mountaineering guiding with one of the clients there. So yeah, I've done a little bit of interaction with Peter professionally as well. So let's bring Peter into the DA studio. And just as an aside, this is the first part of a two-part series as Peter had quite a bit to share on this topic. Welcome to the show, Peter. Great to have you on here. Peter Weiland joining us today from, where are you? Are you in Whistler, Squamish? Squamish, Squamish, British Columbia, just south of Whistler. Awesome. We have the ocean and the mountains. It's beautiful there. Uh, can you tell us a bit about yourself and uh, just let us let our guests know who you are and what you do? Yes, I guess uh, I immigrated to Canada in 1993, um, lived for a few years in Vancouver, then moved up to Squamish. I've, uh, I've been married to my wife uh, since the mid-90s, 26 years going strong. We have three kids, uh, two of my boys, they're adults now, 21 and 18, and our daughter, 14 years old, still lives with us at home. Actually, she's 15 now. She'll give me a hard time for not knowing this. <laughs> so maybe we should redo this right away. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, for 20 years, we, uh, my wife and I, we ran and operated Rocky Mountain Cycle Tours. And um, 
in Squamish now I'm uh, looking after our soccer club as the technical director and in the winter I still ski instruct um, private lessons in Whistler. That's how I come to know Chris quite well. Awesome. And yeah, a few years ago, we were just talking about it offline there, but uh, yeah, you hired me to help out uh, doing some scrambling and climbing with a, a guest of yours in the Canadian Rockies here, which was excellent. The last pre-COVID year, right? 2019. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then that little virus hit the worldwide stage and the rest is history. Right. Changed everything. Um we also uh, sold our company that fall, so it was kind of a lucky um, timing for us, I guess. Yeah, I heard about yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, that worked out well. So our topic today, Peter, is uh, embracing adversity. So we'll start off with asking you, uh, what does adventure mean to you? I guess it's uh, excitement daring, a little bit of uncertainty, um, a sense that there is some danger, that some things could go wrong, not exactly knowing the outcome. For me, it always has to do with being immersed in wild places, um, amazing nature experiences. And for me, it also has that aspect of pushing physical limits a bit. And I come from that endurance, uh, outdoor athlete background. And uh, so most of my adventures have a little bit that component in it as well. <laughs> and what country did you emigrate from? Germany. And yeah. uh, maybe maybe just describe a little bit of the difference, like the reason why you came to Canada in terms of, of adventure. Well, I, I guess I grew up right in the heart of the industrial heartland of Germany, where you're far away from mountains, oceans, and beautiful untouched places. And so... Um, me, like many other Germans, always dreamed about going to wilderness places, having great wilderness experiences. And so Canada is usually top of the list for many Germans, right? I think when you look at places like Baron Lakes or West Coast Trail, um, it's mostly German Swiss tourists that you meet there. Um, and so, um, yeah, it was uh, initially an adventure trip to Canada, a 4,000 kilometer bike ride starting in Calgary through the Rockies to Vancouver, mixed in with a lot of hiking in the Rockies and the West Coast Trail, and then continuing on to San Francisco. Um, that initially um, captured uh, or made me love Canada, and uh, that was in 1991. And then in 93, I had the opportunity to come work here for a German company initially, and then four years later, fully immigrate. Very cool. And you've been delivering adventure for... Uh, quite a while with your business there. What does delivering adventure mean to you? Well, I guess it's um, it it started with that desire to uh, give others others the opportunity to experience wild places uh, with the same joy that I felt when I was venturing out into wilderness places, or even just cycling the Icefields Parkway between Banff and Jasper, where around every corner you feel like you're riding through a postcard. And um, so I, I felt like it should be, I should help others to, to have similar experiences and make them possible for them. Nice. And you feel like you've been able to do that? Uh, yes. Uh, many times you've heard at the end of the trip, this was one of the best weeks of my life, right? Or in skiing, we often hear, Chris, you probably hear that too. When you think it was a, an average ski day and 
guests are just overjoyed and say this was the best ski day of my life and then you feel you've accomplished that you've um, led them into places they wouldn't go otherwise themselves or and you made it feel safe enough that uh, that they can experience something amazing yeah uh, chris and i have gotten to do that quite a bit through our guiding careers in a delivering adventure and it is quite rewarding to have that have those comments and uh, maybe to us it's been an average day or maybe not even anywhere near best day ever and but uh yeah it's all mm-hmm. it's all uh, their perspective right and and uh delivering yeah. the goods yeah i guess it's um all the elements that we feel when we think about adventure, excitement, daring, uncertainty, a bit of danger, we want the guests to think that exists around them too. But as guides and operators, we want to eliminate it as much as possible as well, right? Or have plan ABC in place for uh, for what happens when, right? Yeah, it seems like a smooth delivery to them. And we're constantly dialing it up, dialing it back, moving things along, uh, making decisions all the way along. And so oftentimes they don't even know that we're doing that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's even in a, when you think of an ordinary bike ride in the Canadian Rockies, um, I always tell the guests there's no such thing as a warm rain in the Rockies. And when you're on a bike and uh, the weather forecast doesn't come in as you expected it, uh, even an ordinary bike ride between Banff and Jasper can turn into an adventurous situation with people very quickly getting cold and you have to deal with that. And and so, um, yeah, definitely having those backup plans and quickly changing plans in mind and options to deal with it. Yeah. And how did you get into the adventure guiding industry? What brought you to, to that and starting the business? The opportunity was offered to us to... Um, to buy this business, Rocky Mountain Cycle Tours. Um, it, uh, it had been started in 1977 and the owners then wanted to retire and sell, sold it to a, a rafting company and they didn't quite know what to do with it. And so it was in a sense uh, starting a new business at that time, but with all the business licenses for the national parks in place. And so uh, my wife and I, we went for that and um, that's how it started in 1999 for us. Yeah. And how did it evolve over the years for you? We figured we needed to grow the company to make it financially viable. We um, also looked at branching out in other options and offering not only our own tours, but um, white label operating for larger companies that gave us a fairly consistent flow of uh, customers like REI Adventures in the States. And so um, that was a really great second leg to stand on for us. Fairly um, continuous stream of revenue at lower margins than our own tours, but um, just a large operator that has access to a very large market helping uh, to fill trips. So that was um, a really good way to branch out for us and minimize risks financially a little bit. Awesome. I'm glad it worked out for you. Tell us about the Camel Trophy. What is it? And how did you get involved with it? The Camel Trophy is a marketing event for Land Rover that uh, ran for 20 years. And uh, I was part of the last Camel Trophy in 1998. Um, It was the last one, I guess, because Land Rover had run into financial troubles and then was bought out by BMW. And they they canned the event as they found it too expensive. But uh, 
it it ran for 20 years and it started out as a really rugged um, a vehicle-based adventure event um, where teams would cross the jungles of Borneo or the steppes of Mongolia and it was very much um, vehicle-based like how could you get across that river and all 20 teams work together and build a wooden bridge in the jungles of Borneo or a raft to get all their vehicles across. Um, but the trophy evolved as Land Rover was building different vehicles and uh, the one they wanted to market in 1998 was uh, the little Land Rover Freelander um, and that was basically a vehicle that gets you to the trailhead um, in one piece but but not really like that off-road 4x4 that you want to take through the jungles of Borneo so the the 1998 Camo Trophy was um, tweaked a little bit in a way that it was geared as an adventure rally race um, with driving to the trailheads and then from there you would um, skin up the volcanoes or you would paddle um, across a lake uh, to locations and it was structured in a way that you would given would be given a whole book full of locations all across Patagonia, Chile and Argentina um and you could plan your own route depending on the strength in your team and strength of um, outdoor skills that you had and uh, the idea was to drive to a location and then put on your skis or hop on the mountain bike and find that uh, marker that would give you um, a proof that you made it to that location and depending on how how difficult or how long it took there were points awarded for that so the the format of the race was that from sunrise to sunset you were allowed to collect points you couldn't collect points at night but you were allowed to drive at night so the, the strategy that evolved was to to collect and get to as many of these um, places during the day and then uh, take turns driving through the night while sleeping <laughs> while the partner was sleeping um, so you would be next morning in the next location and so after four days then obviously everyone was exhausted so we had a 24-hour rest day and that would repeat uh, there were four segments of four days with rest days in between and we made our way from uh, Santiago de Chile uh, all the way to Tierra del Fuego uh, and drove a total of 7,000 kilometers in those uh, 16 days plus got to the top of volcanoes and and um, paddled rivers, mountain biked uh, and and trekked through wild areas but um, I think you started out how I got to do this so um, my initial employment in Canada ended in 1997 my wife was still finishing her uh, university diploma in Germany and so I decided to go back for a year to Germany and um, started with a friend of mine a little uh, event um, organizing company or and we we put on a, a few local adventure races and then I saw this um, um, this ad and I think it was a TV ad um, to apply to be on the German team for the Camel Trophy and so because I had a bit of time on my hands I applied um, they liked my resume and so they invited about 150 of us um, 
to an old army training camp in East Berlin and uh, had all of us um, do orienteering races and uh, fitness tests and drive some vehicles and see if we could drive a vehicle and not fall off the trail or so. <laughs> and then they narrowed it down to, after this weekend, they narrowed it down to a group of I think 16 of us who were invited to the Caucasus Mountains in Georgia, and we did another selection week there. Um, again, driving Land Rovers, uh, skinning up to peaks, um, or a lot of orienteering, GPS and compass based. Um, and out of those 16, there were four of us selected to go for a week to Sweden uh, near the ski area of Are. And uh, we did another selection week there, um, this time already with all the European nations there competing. And then in the end, two of us were asked to compete for Germany in, in uh, Patagonia. Yeah. Wow, quite the process. It was, yes, yeah. There were 15,000 applicants, actually, so, and I was uh, lucky to be on the end of it. Yeah, no kidding. Nice. So we're talking about embracing adversity here, and that's part of it, uh, what you just spoke about. What advice would you give to others who might find themselves operating as part of a team in uh, a really physically and mentally demanding situation like an adventure race? Any advice? Yeah, so um, I think... When you when you compete in like a multi-day adventure race where everyone gets tired at some point, I think you want to know your teammates well and you want to know each other's strengths and weaknesses. You also want to um, have the opportunity to take a step back when you're just drained and let someone else take the lead and, and talk about those things beforehand. We found in adventure racing that our teams were strong because we had people who could we had more than one person who could navigate. Um, when I think back to the Eco Challenge in 1996, a lot of teams were made up of uh, triathletes and they they took on one mountain guide or so uh, to, to lead the team through the mountains navigating. But when that person was drained and couldn't focus anymore, there was no one else to to take over that role, for example, right? And... Um, yeah, so it's just um, knowing your roles, knowing your strengths and weaknesses, um, trying to figure out how when to step back and let others take a lead. So um, I guess those are the most important uh, lessons to take away from that. Peter, what's the craziest thing you've ever done? I don't know what's so crazy. I think I, one of the crazier things looking back was trying to solo climb Mount Assiniboine between finishing a trip with guests on Friday at four o'clock and having to be ready and packed up with the trailer on uh, 7 a.m. in the morning on Sunday morning. <laughs> and uh, just realizing going up Assiniboine that this is not going to happen, <laughs> not going to go well, and that I have to turn around and go back. So, <laughs> um, But it was crazy as I just made it back to Sobeys in Canmore just before they closed to get all the <laughs> the food in uh, so I could feed the guests then during the week. <laughs> yeah. Now, now that, that trip wasn't just trying to climb the mountain, but you also ran all the way there and all the way back. Is that right? Yes, I didn't helicopter in, so I, I ran in from the Mount Shark trailhead. Yeah. It was those days where just beginning days of our company where um, – I just came off the adventure racing years and still had that 
gene in, in me a bit. <laughs> um, in hindsight, looking back, um, I should have probably prepared differently for that trip. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us about your trip up Maladout the Basca. Yeah, that was um, when we, um, it was on a cycling trip, Jasper to Banff. And uh, so the um, other guide, Paul and me, we had Ide climbing Athabasca on a day when we would be staying at the lodge there for the whole summer and it never materialized weather-wise. And um, so on this one day, it uh, it didn't seem to cooperate again. It was sleeting when we took guests across to the Athabasca Glacier and it was still uh, sleeting when we sat down to dinner at six. But then as... Uh, as we finished dinner, we saw that it cleared up all of a sudden. And so um, Paul and I decided to go for it that night then. And so we left uh, after dinner. Um, the, the One of the problems was uh, there were lots of footsteps up the mountain. And we thought we would just follow those because it's, it's climbed every day, right, um, during the summer. And um, but the sleet and the snow had covered all of that, so route finding was a little more involved and difficult. It took us a little bit longer um, in the dark until the moon came up behind the mountain. Then then it was all good. But uh, as soon as we stepped off the glacier, um, we also had uh, Paul fall through a little snow bridge and he disappeared in a crevasse. And uh, so. It, but we were roped up, right? So we were, we had all the gear, we were roped up, we were well prepared. And so it was just um, that moment that made you think, okay, we, we are in a serious environment. You've got to be really alert, but uh, it was good, good preparation and nothing happened. <laughs> Can you tell us about your Moroccan Eco Challenge experience? Was there a particularly memorable moment that you can share from that race with us? I'll share three moments um, because it was an amazing race. And the one I think that you have in mind, I'll leave it to last. Um, uh, three things that really stood out for me and are really memorable was the sea kayaking down the Moroccan coast, um, which I think many had underestimated in how severe the wind and waves can be, including the race organizers. Um, our team was quite well prepared because I had windsurfed in the Canary Islands and in the north of Morocco and I knew about the trade winds at that time. We also knew that it's a fairly cold ocean current there that is not warm. And so um, gear-wise and everything, we were well prepared. We, um, we had trained in an environment where it was very windy, but um, the swells were immense. And uh, so we were, we were having kites up um, instead of paddling we were having the wind pull us but uh, these double sea kayaks as they came down the swell the nose would dive in and then the push of the wave was trying to push the kayak sideways basically every wave we came down for this 80 kilometer trip and so it took immense focus and uh, and mental energy and huge course corrections not only with the foot rudder but with the paddles as well to keep the boat straight and so i remember that as a harrowing trip down the coast um and then um the waves and the surf was so big that you couldn't just 
paddle into the there were three or four checkpoints on the beach where you had to paddle in and get your passport stamp to prove you were there um, so you couldn't paddle in and out anymore so they came up with the idea that you would uh, have your kayak crew just wait outside the surf zone and one of you would have to swim in <laughs> and and get your marker there and and then swim out again the problem with that was that when your little head is bobbing in the waves <laughs> and there's 50 yellow boats out there and in quite a bay and they're all spread out what we didn't account for was how do you find your boat again right and so um yeah, after we've experienced that the first time and it took a while to find our own boat, then we had a paddle with some uh, with some things wrapped up um, and uh, so so we could signal which which boat to go to, right? The boats all looked the same. Um, and then the second moment was um, when we got to the horseback riding section. In the previous two eco-challenges, there was also horseback riding involved, but in Australia and Canada, it was fairly tame quarter horses um, who were used to carrying tourists around and, and um, they were easy to guide and completely problem-free, right? But in Morocco, the horses were supplied by the Moroccan army, so they were all Arab steeds and um, really fiery horses and I figured out that you needed to be a rider to to really do well on those which I wasn't <laughs> uh, for most of the sections we were just allowed to walk the horses on mountain trails but then we got to this dried up salt lake and um, here this was the only section in the race where we were allowed to canter or gallop uh, on the horses and so we let loose and those horses just took off like a Ferrari right those are the Ferrari among horses and so when we got to near the end of the lake I figured you got to pull with all your might on those reins here to to make that beast stop again right <laughs> and so I did and it stopped on the dime and of course momentum carried me uh, it kept me going right so I went straight over the front end of the horse dusted myself off and saw my steed galloping off in the distance. <laughs> Luckily, we were traveling with some members of a British team um, with uh, uh, Rano Fiends on the team, who's uh, a friend of now King Charles. Um, and King Charles described him at the time as the greatest living adventurer on earth. Um, and so he was an excellent horseback rider. And so he he galloped off and got me my horse back. Um, at that time, I have to add, we uh, our team already had fallen apart due to injuries and so had the British team and so had another team. So there were six of us together and we continued unranked uh, as Team United Nations, basically. And uh, yeah, so Ranoff shared a lot about his other adventures and the book he wrote, Living Dangerously, and how he blew up things in undercover missions in Arabia and so on. So it was a very entertaining end to the race, yeah, going with him. But the um, the final moment I think you're waiting for, Chris, right, is uh, when we got to near the end of the race. Um, oh, actually, there was still the hiking and mountain biking section was still to come. Um, one of the local villages put on a little party for us in a transition zone um, and uh, this was the only place where um, villagers were kind of supplying the food in the transition zone. Everywhere else we had to have our own food with us and um, I guess we were a little too um, hungry or 
not mindful anymore of all the precautions you want to take in Morocco with um, with getting food poisoning, um, which we had done pre-race very diligently, and we had all managed to stay healthy. But uh, being hungry and tired, so we we went overboard on the local buffet. And then we started our night hike up uh, the second highest peak in Morocco, Jabal Amgoon. And um, as the as the um, night got pitch black and the moon wasn't up over the mountain, we decided to stop at a um, at a checkpoint just below the peak at uh, well over three thousand meters elevation. And uh, as you know, in the desert and in the mountains, it gets freezing cold. Um, even though Morocco is Africa, uh, yeah, you, you experience very cold nights. Um, in an adventure race, you only carry like minimum gears or mandatory sleeping bag was of the thinnest kind. Um, and so we were all really cold as we um, huddled up there. And I put every piece of clothes that I had on, went in my sleeping bag, and because it was still so cold, I drew the draw cord on my sleeping bag tight over my head and then... Uh, when I woke up um, a couple of hours later, I was so sick and I felt um, fluids ready to come out of both openings in my body. <laughs> and I couldn't find the draw cord above my head. <laughs> Before I could undraw it and get out, I had emptied um, on both ends into my sleeping bag. Obviously, soiling all the clothes and gear that I had with me. <laughs> So I was not a pleasant um, teammate to be near for the next days, and safe to say I burned that stuff. <laughs> Made a sacrificial offering to the adventure racing gods <laughs> with that sleeping bag. Peter, I think when you told me that story the first time, you um, you went on to say that you ended up um, one of your teammates actually heard you struggling and let you out. Is that is that true? Yes, I because I couldn't find the draw cord and I was in a mess inside, right? So yes, I had to open it from from the outside. <laughs> then they probably promptly wanted to put you back in. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, it was nasty. <laughs> yeah, obviously we couldn't stay then much longer there. The, the moon um, had come out, so we decided to start moving and luckily all the poisonous stuff seemed to have gone out of my body so can I sh do you have time for one one more thing I would like to um, tell people that adventure can be found close to home and uh, I was actually challenged um, I told you initially I grew up kind of in the industrial um, heartland of Germany more or less where where you think there isn't um, really those great adventurous places around. But when um, when I was doing the adventure racing stuff and I was back there with the Camel Trophy, um, a magazine challenged us to do something amazing in Germany, like an adventure self-supported. And so we came up with the idea to paddle a sea kayak from the ski town of Oberstdorf in the Alps uh, into the Baltic Sea, one of the northernmost German islands. Uh, stretch of a thousand kilometers and um, the experiences along the way in some places it looked like you were in the middle of Canada wilderness beaver dams and so on in other places we didn't see humans for 
um, a whole day um, when we paddled the Elbe River, which used to be the border between East and West Germany, is a very unpopulated area, right? We, we saw amazing sunsets, we saw wild um, masses of wild birds. And uh, so it, it just shows me you don't have to go to the Arctic or to, to climb um, uh, in unexplored places. Um, you can find great adventures um, near where you live. And we, we just set out some parameters to make it a little more challenging that it's self-supported, right? And we don't go to every uh, coffee shop that you could find along the way. And uh, that we would portage our kayak where rivers were too um, shallow to paddle. But uh, yeah, we connected a thousand kilometers through um, and saw some amazing wild places of this country that I had really only experienced as mass populated, uh, very busy looking and and where you always think I got to go far to find amazing places and outstanding adventure. So it can be found near you and you don't have to live in a ski town or uh, uh, in a beach resort to to find great adventures. That's my my word to everyone who is uh, looking to get into adventure stuff. Yeah, and then you just set the parameter every second coffee shop, not every coffee shop. No, we didn't do a single one. We had one food drop halfway. Everything else we did self-supported kind of. Nice. Yeah, so <laughs> That's it. actually one of the points that Greg Hill brought up when we were talking to him about sustainability and how um, sometimes you don't have to travel that far to go and have amazing adventures. And sometimes we appreciate the adventures that we have that are closer to home because we can actually see them, you know, more often. He referenced, uh, you know, a, I guess one of the trips he did, you know, in the Tanless Range. And every time he drives up to Whistler and he can see the Tanless Range from the highway, it mm -hmm. reminds, reminds him of that particular trip. Yeah, yeah, it's even for me, uh... Like going up the Squamish Chief, I've been up so many times the front side, but um, because that got a bit old, I thought, how how do we make it a bit more interesting? So this year I came up with the idea of doing it from the Slahani side, and uh, that way you can, there's several Via Ferradas in there that we can easily climb up and, and do all three peaks and then come down the front side and dropped my bike at the bottom and connected the whole loop. So I did a loop and saw it from a completely different side and a little bit more adventurous. So you can tweak things uh, that, you, that you've done a lot of times and, and find some new adventure, new sites. Yeah. Okay, we're going to pause there with Peter so that we can summarize some of his key points so they don't get buried. We'll pick up the rest of what Peter had to say in our next episode. So when it comes to helping people to embrace adversity, I'd like to highlight two key takeaways from what Peter had to share. The first one has to do with your sleeping bag, and I guess you need to make sure that uh, you don't zip yourself fully up so that you can't escape, according to Peter's story there. <laughs> yes, good advice. Yeah, luckily I've never had to suffer from that. Uh, the second part is that you don't have to go very far to test yourself. Adventure can be done close to home. This is something that Greg Hill uh, also touched on. Um, and, you know, Peter shared the examples of, you know, the first first story I think he, he shared was um, his big adventure in, in Germany, which is which is pretty crazy uh, 
from the viewpoint of, of most people is a thousand kilometer, uh, you know, paddling journey. Uh, but he also just highlighted some uh, hikes closer to home where he actually didn't go very far at all. And then just, uh, and then just varied them. And so um, that's something that I just want to kind of reiterate. I know we've talked about this before, but it is an important part. Adventures can be close to home. You don't need to go a long ways to have them. Jordy, what were some of your takeaways? Well, Chris, yeah, those were uh, one kind of funny one and one uh, one quite good piece of advice there. So Peter talked about starting people off with a little bit of adversity is better than starting them off with too much. And I completely agree with uh, all of our guiding instruction that we do. We really want to we really want to build people up, and if we start at too high a level, uh, it doesn't give us time to assess them, and it doesn't give themselves themselves confidence in what they're doing. So much better to uh, start it off kind of throttled back quite a bit, and then you can always turn it up. And that leads to the second thing that I wanted to talk about is, and that Peter talked about, is that it's easier to increase adversity than it is to dial it down. So uh, start easier and then start to go faster, harder, further, and increase increase your complexity uh, with whatever activity or adventure that you're doing. Uh, but if you start off uh, with both guns blazing and you're you're uh, you're just going really hard, it's uh, it's really hard to dial it back and dial it down in uh, in what we're doing for activities. So just uh, you know, like everybody says, you're supposed to warm up before you go do an activity. Well, this is the this is the warming up part in terms of the adventure. That's a really good point, Jordy. Often I find dealing with people on vacations on day one. They want to start going really hard right off the bat. And I have to pull them back a little bit and remind them that they need to be able to make it through their whole vacation and not burn out at the at the very start. And so when we're acting as people's guides and we're leading other people, that's something that we have to remind them of as well. It's much easier to make things harder than it is to bring them back down again, especially once people start getting tired. Now let's turn it over to you, the listener. What were your takeaways? What stood out to you? You can share your thoughts, story your insights with us via our social media feeds or by emailing us. You can find all of our contact information at deliveringadventure.com. Also, before you go, we need your help. To keep this podcast going, please take a moment to share it with your social network. Adventure is best when it is shared. To finish off this episode, we have one last funny story from Peter. So Spanky's Ladder is uh, on Blackhole Mountain and it's uh, the access to some three fairly amazing backcountry bowls, or not backcountry, it's inbounds, but um, some nice steep skiing that almost feels like backcountry a bit and because you have to hike up about 50 meters, um, uh, it has that almost backcountry type feel and um, so for for many guests it's on the list that they want to ski there and uh, so I had uh, this gentleman who um, who was a really good skier but uh, we hadn't really experienced that or he hadn't experienced that he was afraid of heights um, or hadn't told me so as we walked up um, I guess he looked over his shoulder and it's it's not even exposed. It's just a steep slope that you're sidestepping up for 50 meters with the skis on your shoulders. And um, as he 
turned around and looked down. I guess he felt a bit woozy and let go of his skis. And so his skis slid 50 meters down and then he just jumped and grabbed my boot. And so here I was standing on Spanky's ladder with an adult clinging to my boot. And it was a big powder day and it just opened. So all the hardcore locals were walking by, uh, dropping a funny comment. <laughs> and uh, we ended up um, slipping on our bums down to his skis to plan B. <laughs> and yeah, so that was probably a more funny moment. Yeah, The other one was uh, when I had this guest from New York. Uh, his goal was to ski every double black on Whistler Blackholm and so one of the last ones we did was the uh, um, Glacier Couloir on Whistler Mountain which is almost in, unskiable now um, thanks to the glacier receding it's now like a uh, huge overhanging cornice at the top and maybe a two meter wide ravine that you can still maybe make some hops down but uh, back then you could ski right from the side into it and there was enough snow to make turns but very steep and so that was one of the last ones we got to and um, he, he looked at it for a long time was ready to do it went into the first turn and leaned to the mountain lost his edge and then just started sliding and as he picked up speed he lost his skis and poles and hat I think it was still hats at the time and uh, so he slid almost down to uh, the saddle run good three four hundred meters and uh, so I, I collected all his gear came down and he shook himself off and dusted the snow out of his jacket and he said well didn't do that too badly missed only one turn eh? 